Executive Breakthroughs Podcast with your host, Jason Troy, executive coach and best-selling author. Get game-changing strategies and tactics from the world's most successful executives and entrepreneurs about how they build and grow eight, nine, and 10-figure businesses, hire, manage, and develop A-level talent, create a culture to skyrocket success, build an extraordinary network out of influencers, and so much more. Stay tuned for mistakes you can skip and strategies you can steal, because stealing pens and post-it notes is for amateurs. It's time for another massive breakthrough, Executive Breakthroughs with Jason Troy. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Executive Breakthroughs. I have an exciting guest that's here with me today. Her name is Stefania Mallet. She is a CEO of EasyCater. It's one of the top 10 hottest startups in Boston. She is a very experienced, savvy, and caring serial entrepreneur and executive. She's worked with many companies. She sold another for 14X. She's helped revamp many companies, get in there and help them on strategy, raising funding, strengthening operations, and you're really going to learn a lot from her today on culture, leadership, how to motivate your team and people, and a lot of other insights. So without further ado, let's get into the episode. I have a fantastic guest for you today, and you're going to learn a lot of insights and wonderful information. Stefania, who's a CEO of Easy Cater, and it's a very interesting path she has traveled on. And so I want to start off from the beginning, because one of the quotes or things I heard you talk about is that growing up, you grew up in a difficult family. I just wanted to find out, because I looked at people's background and where people came from, because it's easier to understand yeah. their journey. So what, what does that mean, or how was, how was growing up? I grew up in a family that sent two messages at the same time. I guess everybody gets conflicting messages. One of them is, you're a citizen of the world. There's a lot of interesting stuff out there. You should be out there figuring out how to learn as much as you can, do as much as you can. The other message was, but you don't deserve to live. And that combination was kind of confusing for me. It took me a long time to realize the drag effect that the you don't deserve to live message, which of course was never explicitly said, uh, had on me. How did that play out, though? Because I'm trying to give people, like, what what things happened that told you that you... Yeah, it takes a lot to explain how that came from. Yes. But basically, parents who... It was a strong message. It turns out there are four of us uh, as adults. There was a moment where we all realized that, yeah, we pretty much all came away with that message. Which is yeah. not something that my parents woke up every day wanting to convey, but that right. is what we got. So it was a challenging time growing cha- up. Yeah. Was yeah. there any uh, people that influence you or events on your path forward? I'll tell you, the biggest thing was when I got out of the house, and this exactly um, exemplifies the, the conflict. My mother, who was a difficult woman, my mother is the one who figured out that I needed to go to MIT. And she got me into, or I mean, she arranged it that I applied and I got in. She arranged it that I applied. I got in. And then... And yet the minute I got there and was free of my family, uh-huh. the same family that had propelled me into yes. MIT, that was when I really started to become a healthier person from there on. You flourished on your own with your own flourished independence. On my own. Yep, you got out from under there and flourished on my own. What about MIT I, sort of helped you? MIT is an awesome place. MIT teaches everybody how to solve problems. Like really teaches you how to use your brain and how to use everything you know and everything you can 
interpolate and extrapolate from what you know to solve problems. It also has an attitude which I would never have known to articulate it this way, mm -hmm. but now this is a phrase we use here at Easy Cater. It has an attitude of, well, just try it. I don't know. Not sure if that would work, but try it. And the just try it. Attitude. Implement it rather than people, because a lot of times Instead people of start talking thinking about, about it for a long it, time. Yeah, just, just implement I don't know, start building. And then iterate yeah. and pivot as you go along. With I that. think engineers have courage because there's this sense of, I, I can fix this. I can make something. I can build something. I this And so that strength and courage permeates MIT. So solving problems and engineering problems. Yep. is part of who you are as your yeah. DNA. Yeah. Did you figure out that when you're at MIT or you knew that ahead of time or did you figure that along the path? Or I would or? give my parents credit for having figured out that I was the can-do type who thought you should be able to make something and who had a, I had a certain science and math bent. Got it. And we grew up in Newton, which is a okay. suburb, you know, not far from Cambridge. Not far. And MIT, my father went to the MIT of Switzerland. My father's Italian, but he went okay. to the MIT of Switzerland. And and I was the kid most like him. And so I think that was the natural path. So how did you find yourself good. in this entrepreneurial path? Like, where did you kind of get your itch and where did yeah. you get your start? I think that entrepreneurs come in three camps. I think there's the ones who want to prove something to a parent, usually to their father. Yes. There's the ones who need to prove something to themselves. It's a smaller group than the first group that needs to prove something to their parents. And then there's another group, which is pretty healthy sized, which is, I am so sick of working for other people. <laughs> I just want to, quote, work for myself. You work for your customers, you work for your employees, you work for your investors, but it feels somehow like you're working for yourself. And I was one of those. It took me 20 years of working for other people's companies before I finally was able to launch And out what there. was the event that got you, pushed you finally down this path to be? I, so I am an operating exec. I'm not the idea person. Okay. I'm the one that idea people turn to to say, can you build this company? I have an idea for a product, okay. will you build a company around it? And in 1997, I was approached by, or late 96, I guess, I was approached by idea people who didn't want to quit their day jobs, <laughs> but wanted this idea to see the light of day. And so they asked me if I would do that, and I was in a job that I was kind of sick of, and it was time for change anyway, and I said, sure, why don't I give it a shot? So what company was that? It's a company called Insight Marketing okay. Technology. We sold that one for 14x. Some investors did better than 14x. And that was in that was in a very short period of time, right? A couple of years. Well, 97, 90. I think we sold in around 2000, 2001. It's funny that I don't remember. It was at one of the. It was during the internet bubble. Right. It was a lot of fun. People who say the internet bubble was the era of silliness, and we all shouldn't have done that. They're lying. We had a great time. You had a great time. <laughs> we all had a great time. All of us. So that was pretty incredible <laughs> that you got the company. In trajectory. What, when you went in there, what is it that you needed to do that wasn't being done at the time? This was in the early days of the web. The web was still the Wild West. Uh, we helped companies who were just moving into e-commerce create virtual salespeople software that made you feel like you were being helped in a situation analogous to the best in-store situation. You know, you walk into a store and you find a salesperson who actually yes. knows what they're doing and is dispassionate in their advice to you and and gives you real help in making your decision. We created the virtual version of that and and it made everybody happy. We tripled conversion rates. It was a big yeah. deal. 
It's a great company. I worked at right now technology, so I was familiar with Kana. So oh yeah, and Boston, then we got bought by Silicon yeah, Software exactly. in Silicon Manchester, and then, and then Kana in the West Coast. Yeah. And so Kana you went through this whole process, and yeah. then you were successful at it, and then you started the next venture, which was something different. So what did you well, do? Well, you're ruined once you've done that. It's hard to go back and work for some big company again. Uh, I love big companies. There's a lot of strength and a lot of resources in big companies, but I found that I like the the smaller scenario where what you do has such a huge impact. You know, your mistakes have much bigger effect, yes. and your successes have much bigger effect. The, the things you did right have much bigger effect. So I um, I bounced around a bit helping other people. I'm an operating exec, right? So I was helping other people run their companies or take their companies to the next level. People who were plateaued and needed to go to the next level. People who were uh, who weren't sure how far, whether their idea had legs. I was helping them. And then in, in 2004, uh, I got involved with the company that was the precursor of this one. Okay. Briscoe Rogers is my co-founder here, was the founder of the previous company, uh, he's an idea guy. And he was looking for an operating exec to help him take his idea forward. And honestly, at first, I didn't even want to work for that company. At first, I thought, I don't know. I'm not sure if the problem's that interesting. I just, I don't know. But I kept suggesting people for it to him for him to hire, and he kept hiring them. And then I thought, all my friends work there. Maybe I should just go work there. And so I went in and his I preferred time? There. Preferred time. And so what did he do? Preferred time helped pharmaceutical company sales reps get in front of doctors. Okay. It's a very broken dynamic, and neither yes. side is happy with the way that it works. And we tried to inject sanity and mutual respect into that process. And we got to where a third of all the pharma reps in the country were using us for at least some of their visits to some of their okay. doctors. That was really cool, but still. What was the resistance people paying? The resistance was the pharma firms were kind of torn, like, well, you're either helping me or you're getting between me and my customer. I can't decide. And we figured out the cases where people adopted us and felt that it was really valuable, that that worked extremely well. But there was still resistance, like, well, are you actually going to slow down my access or are you helping my access? And our investors were at a different point in their funds where they ran out of interest they didn't have any more cash to put into the company, so we shut the thing down. That was pretty discouraging. But what lesson whatever. did you learn? I mean, I, I want to get on how you got to where you are right now. Yeah. But what less? What lessons did you learn um, at that point? You know, on number one business that you sold successfully, number two that didn't end as well. As what well, right. What things did you take away from both those experiences moving forward that you learned? Persistence is important. Uh, luck is part of the game. Um, you got to just get back up, pick yourself up, and keep going. Uh, you can't assume because one of them worked and the next one didn't. You can't assume because one of them worked, the next one's going to work. And you can't assume because one of them... That's a lot of, of people them, do. I know, but you also can't assume that because one of them didn't work, the next one's not going to work. You just think, I'm playing a, I'm playing the numbers game. I, my life is my portfolio, and I just keep, got to keep trying and keep trying and keep trying. I mean, what in life have I done where every single time I touched some process, it worked? No. It's the same thing. I had an investor 
the day that we shut that company, preferred time down, I called all the investors. It was not a surprise to them. All the employees, all the investors knew that it was a very good likelihood that indeed we would have to shut this thing down. And when the white knight prospective investor didn't materialize, we closed it down pretty quickly. And I called all the investors to say, look, I'm sorry I lost your money. This is the way the game is played. I'm thinking this, but, but still I felt terrible. And the fourth or fifth guy whom I called said, that's okay, Stefania. I'll do whatever you and Briscoe are, gonna, uh, are, are going to do next. I'll invest in whatever you and Briscoe and are going to do next. why do you think that he, he said that? Because I saw you mentioned that it, people it's, said that. It absolutely blew my mind. And I remember still very clearly, I remember feeling this weight come off my shoulders. And he said to me, well, I was silent because I was feeling the weight. He said, what is that next thing, by the way? And that's when I realized people really invest in people more than the idea that I always heard people say an A idea with a B team is not as good as a B idea with an A team, that the team is what matters. And clearly we were being respected for what we had accomplished even though the company was not successful. So it's the relationships also that you built with all of these people I, that were I'm investors. I'm sure the relationship mattered, but I think it was more the way they observed okay. how we performed. Okay. Uh, it's not like we were best buddies and that they would have sold their firstborn to fund our next company. It. it was more that they saw that we had performed as well as as well as we could and that how we had performed was pretty reasonable. What do you think if you would have gotten away? And the and message I got away, sorry, the message that I took away from that was at that moment he reminded me, failure is the deal for an entrepreneur. It's okay. Failure is part of the game. Part of the process. And I had sort of known that intellectually, but when he said it in those words, emotionally, I resurrected that concept and thought, oh yeah, it's okay. It's okay. And you made peace with what I had happened. I made peace with what had happened, on. and I moved on. I mean, the, the joke, but it's actually not a joke, is that we shut this thing down on Thursday. I got drunk all weekend, and on Monday we launched this thing. <laughs> you know, you pick yourself back up. You know, I was reading somewhere that the art of being a successful entrepreneur is really more about knowing when to kill ideas and, and move forward. And I'm wondering if you would have had that white knight come in, would you have continued? Would you have continued? Would you have continued on or not? I mean, I know it's a that hypothetical was the question. Yeah, I mean, that certainly was what we were looking for the white knight for. We certainly thought there, that business had legs. In hindsight, I see that it was a tough business, a really tough business in a way much tougher than the one we're in now. The one we're in now, the difference is that people were clamoring for the kind of assistance that Easy Cater provides. In, the, in preferred time, it's like almost every other business I've ever worked for. There's a need, but people aren't clamoring for a solution to that need. There's not massive you have pain. To, there's, there's pain, but it wasn't such a strong pain that, that we're all desperate for it, and for a solution to that pain. And so many companies are built quite successfully, convincing us that the pain is really great and that we should buy this thing. Yes. Instead of solving that the pain Instead is there of, now, because you found that, right. the idea you found in the business you have now in the, in the preferred time. We had literally at. thousands of people. Play, tr attempting to place orders, uh, literally thousands of times we were asked, can you make the food appear for this business meeting? And, and we thought two things. We thought, wow, we can bootstrap this thing, and it's a real need. So let's figure out how to do that. And so we did. We launched the thing, again, out of our house, 
out of running. And you did it on a Monday. So, I mean, how did you, how did <laughs> most people lick their wounds for a little while? I know you've had that conversation that you said set you free. Know. Was that really just for you? Was that just as simple? I think that was part of the therapy back. was, was the to therapy. continue to work. Okay. But also, admittedly, it was the beginning of summer. And that summer, we worked, but we didn't work balls to the wall 24 hours a day. Okay. We, we did. I know we were waiting to try to, we leased software. And we were waiting to try to have all the pieces line up. And I would say I worked probably 30 hours a week that first summer. Okay. So I did take some time to just kick back a bit. And you had investors lined up or people that would give you money. It was completely, yes, we did, but it was very small money. You know, Briscoe and I each put in, I don't know, I think together we put in 25000 or something, $22,000, and we raised 100000 more from people okay. like this investor who said, I'll put in angel money. We didn't pay ourselves the first year. The more of a bootstrapping model. It was really bootstrapped. Uh, I remember the discussion about when winter came and we were still working in my house. I said, you know, if I went to a job, I wouldn't heat the house during the day. I have a timer, a thermostat. Should we charge the company the heat bill? And we decided that, yes, I could charge the company the heat bill <laughs> for the for part of the week, for 40 hours of the week, the Monday through Friday, 9 to 5. Yes. So we were that kind of careful about using the money. We didn't feather our own nest with it at all. There are two schools of thoughts in that and bootstrapping it. Yeah. Um, and then there's people that are taking outside capital. Like, how do you view that um, starting a company from an infancy point of view? Because people are probably listening to this and, you know, we've successful people. It depends on your idea. Okay. You know, if you're building a drug, you need a huge amount of money and bootstrapping is not an option. If you're building a service, if you're building a consulting service, if you're doing software for hire, you probably can bootstrap that. And then all the other ideas are somewhere in between on that spectrum. I think that it's wise to not have a lot of money early on because it makes you be really creative and clever about what you're, about how to accomplish what you need to accomplish. And it makes you be pretty ruthless about what's important to work on first. And I think that gives you a sharpened focus. Uh, so I think never, not having too much money is a good move. Uh, at every stage of the company, we've always raised only as much money as we knew what to do with. We we think that's a wise discipline. Uh, I think also um, frugality breeds creativity across the board. Resourcefulness. And I think that's helpful. Uh, I think it helps to be a little scared all the time. I think that sharpens up the senses. <laughs> Fear is a motivator. Fear is a motivator. You, if you have too much, like everything else, yes. if you have too much, then you end up unable to get out of, you know, overwhelmed and you can't really try anything. In hindsight, I think we bootstrapped for about a year too long. I think we were, we could have brought in bigger money earlier. But boy, the day we brought in the big money, I mean, to us at first, a million dollars raised at once was big money. And then we raised two million dollars at once, and that seemed like incredible. And then three million dollars at once. And then we raised 13 million dollars at once. And wow, we could try a lot of experiments at that point. And going fast, which is what with enough money, you can move faster. Which, so money letting you move fast gives you quicker learning cycles. Because that's all this is about. Yes. It's constantly learning and learning and learning and doing, incorporating learnings and moving quickly. Money helps you do that. Move when you're ready. When you're ready. Money helps you move faster. But you got to be ready. And, yeah, you can just throw it away at the beginning. Too. 
and people in place, enough people that you can bring in more good people. So what did you learn about hiring people? Because I'm interested, you know, on company number three, yeah. how is your hiring uh, process or philosophy changed over time? And what have you learned that's kind of the secret sauce to the, finding the right people for you? So I have, over time, I think I've developed my gut pretty well. I think the big change is I try to listen 100% to my gut to the collective guts of all the people who interview. I do not do the interviewing alone. I don't interview every, I don't interview, I don't even interview all the employees anymore. I have people who have trained their guts. We have the group consensus. And if someone, if anybody in the group says, I don't think so, this is not like somebody that makes me go, yes, this is our kind of person and they have the skills, then we don't hire them. You gotta have, if somebody in the group is really negative on an individual, if the majority opinion isn't this very strong, yeah, 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 this, look, oh my God, this is a really a real keeper, then we don't hire. And we've hired pretty well. So how'd you learn to trust your gut? Because a lot of people get different, and they look at the data, look at the people's guts aren't that right. <laughs> right, people aren't that right also, the guts aren't right. So how did you, was there, any, is there anything that happened that got this moment that you reflect on that sort of taught you to trust in yourself? More. One of the great advantages of growing up in a difficult situation is that you learn to read the tea leaves. You learn to be very sensitive to nuance, to understand, well, what's really motivating this person? Because in my family, if you didn't figure out what was motivating your parents, you were going to die. Not literally, but it certainly felt, it felt like, like it. it. Yeah. And so you learn to be pretty attuned to nuances of situations of, of human beings. Harnessing that has been very helpful. You harness that to understand how you can treat a customer really well. You harness that to figure out how you can um, be hire people well. You, so reading people is, is a life skill. Uh, everybody can develop it. But if you developed it under fear of death when you were little, you probably developed probably it more faster. quickly. <laughs> probably got it faster. Yeah. And needed to. And tested needed it to. out. Too. And tested it out. Yeah. Over time. Yeah. So what have you learned also about building culture? Like, what does culture mean to yeah. you? Because I feel like that's a loaded word for some people, but I'm seeing more and more people are really putting a lot more emphasis on that yeah. in the building process and in the DNA of the company. Yeah, culture matters hugely. I mean, everybody has one. I remember just recently I was at an event where somebody said, you know, we didn't think we had a culture. We went off site for a couple of days and we decided what our culture would be. I said, no, you actually have a culture. You always have a culture. You could go off site and decide what you want to change it to if you don't like the one you have, but you got a culture. Uh, ours is pretty intentional. From the start, uh, I have cared about, and Briscoe, my co-founder, has completely supported, has agreed with, he cares about the same things. I cared about transparency, about um, try it, you know, fearlessness, let's just try stuff. And honestly, he's more fearless than I am. To his, he's, he's amazing. The guy is like, how hard can it be? And I've been the, the more cautious voice, and I think the combination has helped us. And I've become more and more brave over time following this guy around. I'm like, he's still alive. Let's keep trying more things. So transparency, fearlessness, and being insanely helpful 
to each other, to our customers, to our caterers. We're a two-sided marketplace, and so we need to support both sides equally well. You can't be emotionally available to be that supportive to your customers and your business partners if you're not being well-treated. So being insanely helpful to our employees and each of us to each other and I to each of them, that's, that's a core tenet of our culture too. I didn't wake up one morning saying, these are the three things. I just, that's the way I behave. And I'll, each, every year as we brought in more employees, we realized we had to articulate more clearly that these are the behaviors. And we've kind of distilled it to those three because that's genuinely who we are and because it helps to say it out loud. Got it. Well, what three things are? Transparency, fearlessness, insane helpfulness. Okay. If you put those together, you know, insane helpfulness is another phrase for we're just really nice to each other uh, in a proactive and thoughtful way. Fearlessness is try it, try it, and track it. Because if you track it, then you figure out whether that was a good thing to try or whether it's time to change it, pivot, adjust, do more of it. Um, and tracking it also improves the sense of psychological safety. It isn't my idea. I don't play the founder card very often. It isn't that I yell loudly. It's that the data said this was a good idea. The data said this was not a good idea. And then it doesn't matter whose idea it was. Let's keep going and do something else. So transparency, fearlessness with data to back it up. And uh, what was my third one? Your, your first one was transparency. Transparency, fearlessness, and insane helpfulness. Sorry, you're right, yeah. Those are my three. I get them in the wrong order. <laughs> okay. uh, so the other part about meeting you and just wondering about your past, yeah. I can see that probably caring and empathy is a huge piece of who you are. And so I wonder how that's reflected in the culture because I find that psychological safety, that's a key component yeah. of making that It's true. A I part was of it. born so you think liking people. I like people. But you think coming out of that difficult time I know. helped it? You can't, it turns out you can't kill things that people are born with. I was born industrious. I was born liking people. I was born optimistic. And you can't kill that in people, I, I don't think. I mean, you can bury it, but you can't kill Eventually it. it comes back out. Eventually again. it comes back out. I've spent my whole life trying to become more and more myself. I think we're all on a journey to being ourselves. Yes. And it turns out myself is industrious and caring and genuinely likes people and optimistic. So everybody who works here, if you, the people who are successful here are people who are like that. Every they manager, right? Themselves themselves or, or they don't, themselves or they don't, or they don't, or they don't even they join. Don't make, join, even join. Every CEO has their own, their own culture, has their own personal style, their own personal sense, and you either match with that or not. I remember a long time ago, the first time I inherited a group, I realized, wow. It's a very good manager who can manage a group they inherit as opposed to a group that they've built that have selected yes. for them and that they have selected for themselves. So that's, that's a real skill. So how do you, you know, working with a co-founder, because I know you've got a yeah. very close relationship, I know. how do you resolve conflicts? Because a lot of people who start businesses together, one of the things that implode them is the people that found the business end up either buying one or out, or they just can't work together and the business sinks. I know, so my how joke you... is that the company's founder on the rocks of the founders arguing with each other. <laughs> yes. But in, we've been, We've done really well. Uh, we are, 
This is the third gig we've been on together, actually. I got involved, he, as the idea guy, had helped found a company with a different co-founder, and they were running into some trouble, and they, and one of their investors said, you need some gray hair. I'm a little farther along in my career than Briscoe is. Not that much farther, but farther. And so I came in and tried to help with that one. We didn't manage to succeed in saving that company, but we discovered that we have complementary skill sets. And we have a lot of the same values. Uh, we have a different, different angles. At, 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 we solve the same problems from different angles, and they, again, they're complementary. We have nothing to do with each other outside of work, and we joke about it. If we ever talk politics, we get into trouble. But it turns out I've, been, I, I've known the guy longer than I've known my husband. I mean, I'm, yes, I'm on my second husband, but I've known him longer than I've known my husband. He's known me longer than he's known his wife. Uh, we, we are the lucky combination of sufficiently different that you have two brains working on things yeah. and sufficiently the same that we don't get into fatal fights. We've certainly had disagreements, but we're both engineers. We both go back to the data. And the data has resolved a lot of issues. It was a great day when we had enough volume going through this system that we could just test it. We didn't have to argue about, like, should the button be blue or should it be red? And we could just test it. And the market said one of them was a better color. And the, and the best it. thing was, neither Briscoe or I could remember, was the blue button your idea or my idea? Because neither of us cares. Neither of us holds questions. So ego, leaving cares. ego at We're the door pretty, and checking it ego, in yeah, is important. Yeah. We're both pretty separated from our egos. Yeah. So what do you think makes a great leader from a good leader? What do you think separates out as you look at yourself and other people? I mean, what is it that you hold out there? Is, is obviously leadership's the key for getting this thing where you want it to go. Yeah. I think there's a, there are two things I would say matter and that's probably a 50, but I'll pick two. One is leadership is being able to stand back and see the bigger picture. See, I always use this phrase with my people. I say, look, pull the lens back. Now as you become a more senior manager, pull the lens farther back. The more senior you are, the more you should pull the lens farther back. Whether you're a manager or a leader, pull the lens farther back so that you can see the bigger picture, see more of where we're going, think about the more strategic dimension. That's one thing. Um, and that's kind of more on the, on a skills level. I guess on the, there's an emotional dimension too. I think leaders really care about people. I think the company isn't what matters, the people matter. And yet, you ha the people matter in order to build a company because the company is this enabler for people to get to a better place. I think work is ennobling. And I think giving people better work to do and giving people jobs they really want to have is a powerful, a powerful force. It's what I actually care about the most. I think all work done well is magnificent. It doesn't matter if you're flipping burgers, if you do it well, it's magnificent. And it's terrifically interesting. Do whatever you're doing well, and it becomes terrifically interesting. And so I think a leader embodies that with, in, in trying to articulate what excellence looks like. 
and helping people get to that excellence. So last question for you. So what's something that you struggle in that you're trying to get better in, you know, as far as being a leader? Like yeah. what, what areas are you now sort of learning or trying to figure out to take it to the next level? Because obviously there's a lot of things you're doing excellent, right? But we're always well, as I people so. <laughs> and leaders that are doing that we're yeah. always trying to learn and grow and trying to get better in. So where's... Because people always want to know that because they see the highlights, but I always like to show people. I know. People, What's the weak spot? What, what are th not weak spot. I think more of just the things that you're learning what about yourself on? and growing because it's evolution is an important part of So movement. fearlessness. You know, I talked about transparency. I'm pretty good at that. I talked about insane helpfulness. I'm pretty good at that. The fearlessness, I continually am working on that. I find myself continually having to say, no, you stretch higher. Go farther. You can do bigger, bigger. Pull my own lens back. So that's the one that I think of those three that I work on the most. Uh, I look very confident and I can talk very confidently, but then inwardly I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> and, and then I say, pull yourself together, woman. And I go out there and I, again, I look really confident. I do really big stuff and inwardly I'm thinking, oh my God, they haven't figured it out yet. How I'm sure I have imposter syndrome like everybody else does. <laughs> Every leader has it. So what, what, has it. what do you do to help yourself make that leap of faith then in order to be more fearless? Is there something that you think in your head or is there something that you... There's two things. One is I use data. I think you've had a lot of success up to this moment. You think you can, you know, look at everybody else. They've all fallen down a few times and they've done okay. If you've gotten here and if they did that, why can't you? So I use the data of other people's experiences as well as my own life history. Uh, and the other thing is, <laughs> this is something I get it from my co-founder. Briscoe Rogers has the opposite of he doesn't think he deserves to live. Briscoe has a core. The, the line I use is, you know that, that clown that you got when you were a yes. kid that you could whack it and no matter what happened, it bounced back up? Briscoe's like unshakable in his core. And I thought, I want to be like that. So I watch, I watch him. And I think, unshakable core. Come on, you can do it. Unshakable core. He's not the only one in my life that I've seen like that, but I see him every day. So it's a good example. Constant reminder for you. Constant year. reminder. Yeah. Wonderful. Thank you for joining us today. Go. And it's another you. show of executive breakthroughs. And we had a lot of insights, a lot of great thanks things on the show today. And uh, thanks for coming on. Thank you. Great to be here. Thanks a lot. <laughs>